Let's pray together one more time before we begin, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves beneath your mighty hand. We know that you are a holy God, a righteous God. We know that you are fully acquainted with the deeds of your people. We know that you are fully acquainted with our ways. And so, Lord, we lay ourselves before you and we ask that you would be gracious and merciful to a people that are weak and feeble, even as our text says. And we pray, God, that you would give us the zeal that we need just in order to engage in the holy pursuit that this Scripture is calling us to live out in our own lives. And I pray, God, that you would use this as another powerful warning in our own lives, in our own Christian life and our sanctification. If you use this warning of apostasy, use this warning of Esau even, uh, for our own fear, for our own reverence, for our own worship, for our own personal piety. We pray that you would be glorified and help me now. Give me a mouth to speak your word and give your church ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it is passages like what we are uh, encountering here in Hebrews today that have caused many Christians great trepidation. My wife and I had a visitor once where it was passages like this that had gripped this believer in fear that they had fallen into the category of Esau, that they were beyond the hope of repentance, and that perhaps they had sinned too greatly or gone too far that they were beyond the place where they could ever repent again. And I've seen many, many believers that have fallen into the, 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 the fear that they are somehow under this condemnation of the book of Hebrews, where in Hebrews chapter 6 we are told that those who were tasting, those that were exposed to the powers of the age to come, that because they had fallen away, they could never be restored again to repentance. And now here again, the author of Hebrews is coming back to this notion that there is a place that you can go from which you can never repent. And so on the face of it, many of us automatically start to fear in a healthy way, I believe. And I think that's the point of Hebrews and the example that is given to us. We're going to come to this uh, section of this passage uh, in chapter 12 here, but there are several things that are sort of lined out for us that stem directly out of what we just experienced going through the section on the discipline of the Lord. And um, therefore, what I want to focus on today are the three things that I think the author focuses on, which is strength, peace, and purity in Jesus Christ. First, I want to talk about the strength that he's talking about here. Look at verses 12 um, down to verse 13. He says, therefore, strengthen the hands. You can see right there, there is an exhortation given to strengthen. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And of course, this visits back the analogy or the metaphor that was given earlier about the runner, the one who is running the race. So with that, let's just remind ourselves of verse 1 of chapter 12. 
He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the context. The context is the health of the athlete that is in the race metaphor. Now we are being told that the church bears the obligation to strengthen those that are weak and those that are feeble among us. In other words, this is sort of reminiscent of what the Apostle Paul talks about in his body imagery in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14. There we know the Apostle Paul talks about we are one body, many members, one member suffers. We all suffer together because we are members one of another. And though there are many members, there is one body, many functions, but there is one spirit that is distributing to all the members its various giftings and components that go along with body life. But now we're being told this, that you will, in the race of faith, you will encounter great weakness. You will come to a point of exhaustion. And that's really what's going on here. The language that he is talking about here is he's talking about being spiritually exhausted. And if you have not been there yet as a Christian, you may. Uh, I know for my sake, I've been there. I've been to the point where I am spiritually weak, spiritually exhausted, where I am literally, I feel like I can't run one more lap because of whatever happened that week. And the good news for us is that what this is telling us is there is a potential for strength. And so if you're feeling weak, know that there is there is strength for you to be strengthened in the community of believers. Now what's interesting is that this is not a direct quote, but it is an allusion back to the Old Testament where the author of Hebrews is going to pick a passage out of Isaiah and sort of uh, allude to Proverbs and, and, and this whole imagery of the covenant community of God's people who need to be encouraged and who need to, uh, who need to be, uh, 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 encouraged about their salvation. Uh, Isaiah 35, to be specific, is where Hebrews is quoting from. Isaiah 35 verse 3 says this, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. You hear the language there? That's exactly why Hebrews is using that. He says, say to those who are anxious of heart. Are you anxious of heart? I know anxiety is a big deal for a lot of us. Take courage and fear not. Behold, God will come with vengeance. And and, and, uh, the recompense of God will come. And this is the great and glorious redemptive promise. But He will save you. Isn't that remarkable? That though we live in a world that is destined to be damned, to come under the judgment of God and we see it all around us. Pastor Lynn and I were just talking about this the other day. We look at the news, it's like, boy, when you look at the headlines, I mean, you would think the apocalypse is upon us. What a comfort it is that no matter how crisis-like the world is around us, we have a safety We have an encouragement that can never be taken away. This is why Jesus told his disciples that he would give us great joy after the resurrection. And he says, and your joy will never be taken away. See, we have an indomitable hope. And that is what should drive our courage. That's the way to be strengthened in the faith. To know that all of these things will transpire. God will judge. God will recompense. But... 
He will save you. And then what's the directive? Therefore, make straight paths for your feet. And that's quoting directly out of Proverbs chapter 4. You see, we have to listen to what he's saying here because he's implying a couple of different things. One of the things he's saying is that not only are Christians susceptible to weakness, not only are we susceptible to, let's call it spiritual fatigue, but there are also external dangers. Uh, it says here, make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame will not be put out of joint. Now, that's a very good translation. Will not be put out of joint because... In the ancient world, it was a medical term for somebody who literally sprained an ankle or who had a, a, a joint ripped out of its socket. And what it's, what it's implying here is that there are those dangerous elements and influences around us that can, if you would, dislocate our joint, spiritually speaking. In other words, somebody in the body can be wrenched out. One commentator commentator translated this as being wrenched out of place by some sort of external thing. But whatever it is, whether you are hobbled by sin, whether you are being hindered, or to use his language, being encumbered by some sort of weight, unbelief, or whether it's heresy or apostasy, what he's saying is that the church has a duty to strengthen its members. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to make the observation. If you look at verse 15, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. But he uses a very peculiar term. He says, see to it. And I just use that word because the word in the Greek is episkopeo, where episkopos is an overseer. That's like First uh, Timothy chapter 3, uh, where he talks about uh, he who desires the work of an overseer, right? And the, the word, this verb, as a matter of fact, is only used one more time in the New Testament, and that's in First uh, Peter chapter 5, where there Peter uses it, of the elders. So episkopeo is saying... I think implying some 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 uh, element of oversight. So what I'm saying is that the church, in its organized way, through the leadership, pastorally involved, the church functioning well, functioning rightly, has a duty to oversee the souls of God's people so that they are not wrenched out of socket, so that they are not ripped out of the body of Christ. In other words, it's as if the other members of the church, which of course maybe preeminently includes the pastors, they are to be physicians of the body. We are to take care of all the other members that are mentioned here. Now, this concern has already been raised. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. If we give you two texts where the author has already, in a sense, alluded to the same thing, that there are spiritual perils. That's the one thing about the book of Hebrews, is that Hebrews is acutely aware of the danger that believers face in the Christian life of falling away. And therefore, Hebrews unashamedly confronts us with our need of accountability and our need of encouragement from one another. In other words, Hebrews is telling us, humble yourself and receive help from one another. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, spoken in much of the same way. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil heart, an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And so, therefore, this is a person who is on the precipice of being ripped at a socket. 
but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. Now you see in your Bible how today is either in quotes or it's an Old Testament quote in one way or another. Mine is all caps, right? Why is he saying as long as it's still called today? Is it any other day? It's not any other day because the word is in quotes. He's quoting directly out of the Old Testament. I think it's Psalm 95. He's quoting that because that today is actually a day of visitation. Today symbolizes the day of salvation. It is the day of redemption. It is the day when Yahweh would save His people if when they hear His voice they would not harden their hearts but would believe. And so what the author is saying is literally our time that we live in today, presently, right now, as long as you can draw breath is an opportunity because God is a saving God and because God in the new covenant has opened up a vast new day of redemption through Jesus Christ. As long as it is still called today, as long as God is still working redemptively in the world, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness, the deceitfulness of sin. We are, look at the conditional statement in verse 12. We have become partakers of Christ if, that's a big if, brothers and sisters. I think it's an if that we all have to feel the weight of. If, he says, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. That word assurance or confidence, what he's saying is that that same initial assurance, that same initial work of the Spirit of God that you had upon believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Upon converting to Christianity, apart becoming a Christian, as long as you hold on to that, that, that basic kernel of faith and you hold fast to that assurance to the very end, you will be a partaker of Christ. Isn't that immense? What it's saying is this. If you do not falter in unbelief, if you stay faithful to the gospel, that what happens is to use the language of Paul, absent from the body, present with the Lord. In other words, you have a glorious hope that says you will come into the presence of Christ in a saving way. But if you do not hold fast, then judgment, fury is the only expectation left. Turn to chapter 10. Just another basic example of how we are to strengthen one another. We have to acknowledge that we can be weak. We have to acknowledge that we are susceptible. We are not super Christians. You are not superhuman Christians. You do not have, you do not possess super spirituality. Nobody in this church has any sort of immune system that prohibits you from getting spiritually ill where you don't ever need any help. You don't need anybody's Spiritual assistance. No, quite to the contrary, brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, we are fundamentally weak people. We are needy people. I've heard Christians say this over the years. I need the church so bad. I would die without fellowship. I love when I hear things like that because that's exactly what the Bible says. We need one another. Without each other, we will not survive. No such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Rogue Christianity is an illusion. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another. There it is. 
to love and to good deeds, not forsaking the assembling, assembling together. And that is the technical word, ecclesia, for church. Do not forsake the church. We can say it this way. Do not forsake churching one another, right? As is the manner or the habit of some, which that phrase is pejorative. In other words, it's negative. He's looking down on that. As is the habit of some, and that's not a good habit. He says, but encourage one another all the more as you see, as you see the day drawing near. So another call for us to live eschatologically, knowing that the last day is coming. Now, we can spend all day simply just talking about that. And it's a theme that I love to talk about, which is strengthening ourselves through fellowship. But he talks about something else. He talks about peace. It's not just strength in the church, but also, watch this, peace with all men. Look at what he says in verse 14. Pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. What an amazing thought. What this scripture is telling us is that the Christian life is a pursuit of something. Um, If you want to take stock of your Christian life, where you are spiritually, just ask yourself, what are you pursuing? Are you after something in your Christian life? Is there a direction? Do you have a spiritual trajectory that is of a sanctifying effect on your life? Or are you stagnant? Are you ineffective? Are you, are you unfruitful? Are you stuck? Are you in a rut? Do you find yourself being mainly apathetic about the things of God? According to scripture, that is not a good place to be spiritually. We have to be pursuing, uh, diokete literally means persecute. Go after it. Uh, you know, like in Texas, you'd say, get after it. Well, that's right. That's what we're supposed to do with our sanctification. We're supposed to get after it. There's no such thing as passivity in the Christian life. Matter of fact, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. You can go there. I can read it to you. Philippians chapter 2. I would say this is a parallel passage to that thing that Paul says here. Philippians 2.12, he says, you know this verse. It says, So then, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, not when people are watching, not when something is expected of you. You don't do it just because mommy and daddy want you to do it, but you do it because it's right, because you have a regenerate heart, if you have a regenerate heart. He says, But now, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So it's a pursuit. And it's a logical pursuit. I want to show you that this is a logical pursuit, even based on the text that we're seeing here. You remember in the context, if you go back up to the section where the author was talking about the discipline of the Lord, look at verse 11. It says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see that? That when God has so trained you, As you're living the Christian life and you go through your trials, you go through your suffering, you go through your affliction, and you see that mainly as God spiritually spiritually training you up, 
You don't look at your trials fatalistically. You don't look at your trials and think, oh, these things have come upon me for no good reason whatsoever. But understand, even as James says, brothers, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials. When James says that, James chapter 1, he literally invokes the imagery of falling into a trap, of being surprised, kind of like when you are overcome by a robber. You're just shocked. You're, you're overcome. But isn't that what trials are like? From one day to the next, trials can change everything. And all of a sudden, you are surrounded by a host, a complex of situations and circumstances and decision-making that's difficult and trying. Well, James and Hebrews is saying, that is God training us for righteousness. And guess what? When he says... Those who have been trained by it. In other words, you have gone through the process. You know something about sanctification, what it feels like. Then you know that the outcome of that training is peaceable. It's peaceful. And the fruit of it, it's righteousness. It doesn't produce wrath. It doesn't produce grumbling and complaining. It doesn't produce immorality. It doesn't produce blasphemy. It produces a spirit that is subdued and tranquil and yielded under the sovereign hand of an all-loving Father who disciplines us for our good. It also makes sense that he focuses on peace because if you remember the context of what the Hebrews are going through, and just look over to chapter 10. Remember, um, that the context of all of this has come from the place of persecution. That really is the overarching context of the book of Hebrews. Who's he writing to? He's not writing to Christians that are safe and comfortable. He's writing to Christians who have been persecuted and abused and are currently being oppressed by an evil world system that has resulted in throwing people in jail, being beaten, and having your stuff taken away from you by an evil culture. And so it makes sense that the proper attitude of the believer is not vigilantism. It is not retaliation. It is not revenge. We don't form Christian militias in order to get payback. No, no, no. Instead, we pursue peace with all men. And there is a great, uh, there's a great warning that comes with this as well. Notice Two things are connected with the word here, to pursue. We pursue peace with all men, and then there's a conjunction, and the holiness, the the sanctification, which is interesting because uh, the author uses the articular form of this word, which is literally not pursue sanctification, but he says pursue the sanctification. Isn't that amazing? In other words, there's a, there's, a, there's a certain standard of holiness. There's a spirituality. In other words, there's a Christian life that you have to pursue. There's a standard of obedience. It's not just any standard. It's not spirituality as you make it up. It's spirituality as is determined by the dictates of Scripture. It's true spirituality. There's all kinds of false spirituality in the world, is there not? There's all kinds of false piety, even in the Bible. By the way, this is one of the things I love about the Bible is that when you're searching for an example, it's usually right there in the Bible. (laughs) I know how preachers like to use examples from contemporary life. 
but we have endless examples right here. Uh, one of the most important books that I own, uh, I bought it because I heard John MacArthur uh, mention it once. It's, uh, it's, I think it's 10,000 illustrations from the Bible. Oh, I got to tell you. And this thing is like, go on Amazon and I think you can get a cheap copy for like two bucks. But go on there and what it is is illustrations that come directly out of the Bible. Uh, anyway, don't get me off on what I study, but you know what I mean. It's a great study tool because, I mean, the preacher is supposed to illustrate from, you know, some story on television or something. But that book helps you to make an illustration from Scripture. I love it. It's just more Bible. <laughs> and in a church like ours, that's a good thing, right? Okay, good. You may not get the most creative preacher out of it, but <laughs> but it is more Bible. Philip Hughes uh, talking about the sanctification. Listen to these words. This is great. He says that it is possible and often too common that men pursue a spurious holiness is plain from Christ's condemnation of holiness of those religious hypocrites, Pharisees, whose sanctimonious piety is a public display of self-esteem manifested in a calculated ostentation of their devotional exercises and almsgiving. Ostentation meaning public, right? He says that they may be praised by men. He says true holiness, however, is inward and private between God and his, between man and his God. And the good deeds which are its fruit are performed as secretly as possible as an expression of loving concern and with an aversion for all fanfare and publicity. In other words, True spirituality is in the heart. It's in the secret place where no one sees. He says, this kind of holiness, which reflects pure goodness of God, springs from a single-minded love of God, not from love of human applause, and is consistent with a longing to see the Lord, who is all holy, not with the lust to be seen by men. Perfect. Those who long to see the Lord do not do their holy deeds to be seen by men. I thought that was great. Strength in the church, peace in the world, and finally, purity in our faith. Now for this, the author is going to use a historical example, namely Esau. Look at verse 16. He says, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Now, verse 16, I have to mention quickly, is connected to verse 15. It's connected to the word to see. You see that? Or see to it. See to it that there is no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. He says, for you know how that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, the terrifying analogy here is that the author of Hebrews is connecting this redemptively to the people of God, or at least spiritually. What he's saying is that what happened to Esau on a historical plane can happen to you on a spiritual plane. You remember what the blessing in the Old Testament was. It was a redemptive blessing. Ultimately, it was a messianic blessing. It was not just a blessing of of patriarchal blessings, but those patriarchal blessings were typological, ultimately, of salvific blessings, of spiritual blessings. And that 
may take us in a different direction. But I want to just hone in on this reality that Esau is, is singled out here because look at the way that he's described. He is called immoral and godless. You see that? Now, think about immorality. I think that's the, I think that's the easy one, right? I think that's the one we all know, like, the Bible everywhere condemns immorality. And here the Greek word is sexual immorality. There's no shortage of passages of scripture that talk about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul says, get the immoral man out from among you. There, there is no compromise whatsoever. You know, Ephesians, Paul says, not even a hint. So there's no, there's no, um, surprise that the author would be saying, Immoral, immorality or focusing on immorality. But to me, it's the word godless. The word godless is a powerful word because it stresses the fact that a person has become completely worldly. They have no regard for spiritual things at all. Now, that's remarkable because when you think of Esau, if you go and if you read the Old Testament account of Esau, then what is spoken about Esau is that he was, he, he, you know, he was deceived out of his birthright, right, by his wicked brother, and, and, and the blessing was stolen, and certainly he was the victim of that, and certainly at times Esau even uh, exhibited forgiveness. But whatever we make of him, we understand that ultimately Esau was immoral. Matter of fact, in Genesis, we're told that Esau was considered to be immoral because he took to himself foreign wives and it displeased his parents. And ultimately, in Jewish tradition, Esau has always been looked upon as an immoral, sensual man. I think the language of this is captured so well by Leland Ryken's dictionary on the Bible, biblical imagery. Listen to what is said here. He says, On a human plane, Esau is the dim-witted outdoorsman a slave to his stomach, a dupe ready to be exploited, unable to dispense with instant gratification for the sake of eventual reward. On a spiritual plane, he is the archetypical profane person. Wow. Archetypical means he is the standard of it. He is, he's become a byword. It says the person of misplaced values with an inadequate regard for spiritual realities. To this day, we have a proverb about selling one's birthright for a mess of pottage or for a bowl of soup. In other words, you have so little regard for spiritual things that you would sell your soul for a bowl of soup. That's the analogy. That is how godless and that is how much Esau disregarded spiritual things. And what I think is fascinating is that the author of Hebrews is now telling us, let there be no one in the church like that. Don't you see what he's saying? What he's saying is you can have a person who on the external level, on the outside, there's a veneer of spirituality. There seems to be a semblance of concern for spiritual things. But in reality, they can be completely bankrupt of spiritual things. No concern, no love to God, no love for the brethren. This is why the Apostle John says in 1 John, He who does not love is not of God. Wow. John is often called the apostle of 
light and darkness because for him there was no gray area. You either love God, love his people, or you do not know God. Period. Case closed. And in a sense, that's what we're after here is how is it that a person can get to such a spiritual condition that they, they, they ultimately become godless. They wane in their spirituality. We never want to arrive at that point. And you know what we need to do? Here's what we need to do. We need to get to it at the root, right? You thought I passed over that passage? Look at verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. Now, I save this to the end because I think this is the way out. I think this is the way for us to never become like Esau, is that we, we, we attack things at the root. Now, here in Hebrews, it may seem that what the author is focusing on is the, the vice of bitterness, right? Because he says that, that there be no root of bitterness. But actually, once again, the author of Hebrews is quoting an Old Testament passage, namely Deuteronomy 29, if you haven't seen it there in your cross-reference. And what is going on in Deuteronomy 29 is that Moses is handing down the stipulations of the covenant. And he's saying, in order for you to stay in a proper covenant relationship with God, be sure that there is no poisonous root that pops up in any way. I'm going to read it to you. Deuteronomy 29, beginning in verse 14. This is what the Word of God says. He says, Now not with you alone, and I am making this covenant and this oath. Notice that God is both a covenant-making God and He makes oaths, right? Um, That's important because a lot of times when you see the word oath, the Bible is thinking covenantally. But verse 15 says, But both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today, for you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols, their wood, their stone, their silver, their gold, which they had with them so that there will not be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe, watch this, whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. You see what he's saying? What he's saying is that, and the application is so clear for us, That just as Israel understood its pagan surroundings, Moses is saying, take care that you did not, in observing the paganism from which you came, that you do not harbor a root of that paganism in your own heart. Same thing in our lives. Make sure that as you observe the pagan immorality around us in America, that you do not allow for the slightest root of poison to come from the pagan culture to take root into your heart and defile you. Because that's exactly what can happen. Esau is an example of this because he allowed a root to take hold in his heart where he loved his independence. He loved his sensuality more than he loved the things of God. And that's why the Bible tells us 
Be careful. Root it out. Uh, get it out. Uh, don't allow any of it to take hold in the church. Uh, just take you to one more passage to illustrate this. Turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. A lot of times in the New Testament, when the authors are connecting us to this idea of either sexual immorality or immorality in general, that is really of a defiling effect on the church, a lot of times they root it and ground it in the Old Testament. It's amazing. Anyway, this is another example. This is a very familiar passage to us. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we can begin reading in verse 16, but really the context goes up to verse 14. Now, you know this passage because this is where the Apostle Paul says, you know, do not be unequally yoked. And we know that text. And we would say, yeah, you know, you can't marry an unbeliever because you're going to be unequally yoked. Correct? And that's right. But it's the way that Paul sees it, it's way more extensive than that. It's not just don't get married with an unbeliever, but I think he thinks of any tight-knit fellowship that you may have with an with 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 anything that is not of God that you don't need to be connected to and that you willfully connect yourself with. Your best friend should not be an unbeliever. You should not love the people down at the at the job place more than you love your people. You should not get along with people at the gym more than you get along with people in the church. I know we're nothing fancy. And I know families have issues. But we have to guard our heart that we never form such a close association with anyone who does not share the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm very guarded who I regard as my close, intimate friends. I will never partner with the unbeliever again in that intimate way. My own family... I will not be as intimate with as I will with believers. I mean, isn't that what Jesus taught after all? Who is my mother? Who is my daughter? Who are my brothers and sisters? He who does the will of God. He who does the will of God. And Paul says right here in 2 Corinthians, be careful. What, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? This is a certain kind of conditional clause that anticipates a negative response so that what he just said is nothing. (laughs) Nothing. We should be so affectionately devoted to Jesus Christ that the unbeliever has nothing in common with us on that level. Oh, we could talk about the weather. We could talk about sports. We could talk about work. How long can you talk about that? How long can you talk about politics? Well, some of us may be longer than others. But really, how long can we talk about the weather before we have to talk about who made the weather? How long can you talk about the creation before you talk about the Creator? Not long. Well, Paul says, he says here, there's no agreement because this is the, this is the relationship between the temple of God and idols, the living God. He says, God says, I will walk among them. See, he's quoting this Old Testament citation here in verse 16 directly out of places like Exodus and Leviticus. And he's stringing along these passages. He says, I'll walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, 
says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. That's what I mean by a root. Don't even touch it. You know, you're battling with immorality. It's because not only are you touching it, you're making an opportunity for it. You've made an occasion for it. You're making a place for it. You're giving yourself an opportunity to do it instead of don't even touch it. Like Paul says, not even a hint. You know, you're dating, you're courting, and your boundaries are just not far enough. That's why you're in trouble now. Because you thought that you could handle this line. And then you cross that line. And you thought you could handle this line. And then you cross that line. And before you know it, you're sitting in a counseling situation with me and there's disaster right before me. It's because we don't set ourselves the proper limitations. Don't kiss. Because you're going to end up in bed. Duh. Are we that stupid? You know, the Word of God knows what it's saying when it says, do not touch what is unclean. Because what is unclean will defile. And therefore, if you don't mind being contaminated with the unclean things of this world, then go ahead and touch them. But here's the reality, right? Even as we go back to Hebrews. Hebrews, he says that what defiles actually and never stays alone. Sin is never alone. It defiles the many. You see that? There are corporate dimensions to your private sin. And that's why we have to walk circumspect. That's why we have to walk in fear and in trembling because our sin is never private. Our sin will always spill over into the people of God. It will always have contaminant effects. I mean, you know that right now in Southern California, radioactive waste is washing up on the shore because of the earthquake that happened in Japan? That's thousands of miles away. And you know what? You think that people's lives in the congregation are thousands of miles away from you and your private little struggle and your private little sin, but as sure as that waste gets to that shore, your sin is going to affect the people of God. Because that's the nature of sin. It is radical. Radical means it goes everywhere. And therefore, the best bet is not to touch it, to stay away from it, Let's go back to um, Hebrews 12 if you're not there already and just bring it home because he says that Esau who was immoral was godless. He sold his birthright for a meal and afterwards there was no place for blessing. Now, inheritance and blessing and that language connects us directly to the new covenant. And what, what the author is saying is this, is that the blessings that we, the blessings that are afforded to us in the new covenant, if we, through sin and apostasy, if we forfeit these blessings, we can potentially put ourselves in a place where there remains no sacrifice for us, where there is nowhere else for us to go. Now, I understand as a Calvinist that the Bible teaches the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. You want to be more specific? The preservation of the elect. 
so that we are safe in God's hands. However, as I told you before, that the author of Hebrews, he uses these warning passages as a means to keep us persevering as elect children of God. There's a real fear there. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you're saved. I have a good hope. I have a general assurance. But I don't know ultimately, and you do not know if I'm ultimately saved. Only God knows the heart. And therefore, we cannot just go around assuming that everyone around us is elect and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, don't go to the other extreme and go off on the other edge and say, well, now you've got to go around and question everybody's salvation, right? I've seen that. That's not good. Matter of fact, when one of my, one of my heroes in the faith, Artaxerdia, preached this very text, he had to get up the next week and preach on perseverance because people thought he was articulating that you could lose your salvation. <laughs> this is how dicey the book of Hebrews is. And that's okay. I'm fine with the tension that what the Bible is telling us is if we don't warn people against the potential of apostasy, that that is the means through which God is going to keep us and preserve us, I'm okay keeping that tension. Because God is wiser than we are. He knows what we need. And what we need is not to say, oh, you're elect, don't worry about it. That is not Calvinism. Now you're slipping into what's known as hyper-Calvinism. Right? A disregard for the means that God uses to preserve His people. Therefore, we can learn from Esau that instead of being immoral, we are pure. Instead of being godless, we are devoted. Instead of having being irreligious, because that's what the word means, we are concerned supremely with the things of God. Esau was not, he was not uh, concerned supremely with the things of God. You would have found Esau down at the Bass Pro Shop every weekend. He'd be obsessed with his fly reel. He'd be out looking at the boats. That's where he found his all. He found his all in his own escapades. But those who are in the covenant of God, we find all of our ambitions in Christ. And therefore, we have to be, we have to guard our hearts. Guard our hearts that our devotion is never divided. That we don't prize a hobby over Christ. That we don't prize, you know, work over Christ, that we don't prize entertainment over Christ, that we don't prize anything over Christ. Father, oh, we understand that based on what Scripture says here, we will come into seasons where we are weak, feeble, where we feel lame, we feel like a, a, like a limp, uh, uh, like a limb that went limp, that is just not working properly. Sometimes we feel like we're not inspired. We're not zealous. We're not passionate. And Lord, in those times, may the church be the church. And may we rise up to help one another, to be there for one another, to encourage one another. And if need be, to, uh, to confront, to admonish, to rebuke one another in love. And Father, we pray we would learn from the example of Esau, who had such a minimalistic view of religious things. He had no desire whatsoever. Isaac is talking about blessing and the patriarch and 
and, 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 and all the blessings that would come from God to him, he checked out. He didn't care. And so, God, I pray that you would take away any apathy from our heart, that you would not allow there to be any immoral or irreligious person among us. And we pray that you would do that by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.